Well, if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we are returning to our study of the book of John. We left off last summer, and now we're going to track with John up through Easter. And I love the Gospels because here we see Jesus so very clearly. We see the, as Jonathan Edwards put it, the admirable conjunction of divine excellencies in Christ. That's what you're going to see week in and week out. The admirable conjunction of divine excellencies in the God-man. So look at John 11, please, as Susan comes to read a big chunk of our passage. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. John chapter 11, 1 through 27. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Susan. 
the messenger arrived suddenly, sent by Mary and Martha. The message is, Lord, he whom you love is ill. For the one Jesus loves, you would expect Jesus to go quickly, but he doesn't. He stays where he is located for two days. In fact, he delays, verse 6 says, because he loves. Ever have a time in your life like that? A time when God seems delayed? Delayed in responding, delayed in answering, and you're perplexed. Maybe you're there right now, waiting and perplexed. I mean, surely a loving God would act on our timetable. And if he doesn't, he must not love me, or he's not the kind of God I thought he was. You feel what Mary and Martha are going through here. As one day goes by, and then another day goes by, and their brother Lazarus slips into unconsciousness. Where is Jesus? But the Lord of the universe is aware of everything. And he announces to his disciples in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples think that's great. He's resting. He's sleeping. He's going to get better. Jesus explains plainly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. He's died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Notice, so that you may believe. So that you may believe. Love delays here, in this case, to strengthen faith. The disciples believe certain things about Jesus, to be sure, but their faith must deepen and broaden and strengthen like our own. We tend to be, I tend to be, like the child who asks, Are we there yet? as the car just begins to pull out of the driveway. Our Lord wants us to learn to wait and trust, to trust that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And then, and then Jesus takes the approximately two-day journey for the funeral of Lazarus. Lazarus, who's been in the tomb now for four days, verse 17 tells us. Now, rabbinic tradition in this day said that a person's spirit could hover over their body for up to three days, and then, possibly in that three-day period, the person could be resuscitated. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches, but that was rabbinic tradition in this day. And that explains Jesus' delay. He delays his arrival to be four days after Lazarus' death so that there would be no doubt in anyone's mind that Lazarus was truly dead. But Martha doesn't know this. She doesn't know why Jesus delayed. And so she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's not... I don't believe, an accusation. It's grief reaching out in faith. She knows Jesus has the power to heal. She can't understand the delay. So she's grieving while she's believing. That's a good place to be. Grieving 
while believing. But Jesus is after more in her faith as well. He gives an intentionally ambiguous reply. Your brother will rise again. That is some planned ambiguity, as D.A. Carson puts it. Your brother will rise again. She replies, yes, Lord. He will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Martha knows her Bible. She knows God has promised a future resurrection in places like Daniel chapter 12. But it's not, it's not personal for her yet. She doesn't realize through whom through whom this future resurrection takes place. So in verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of seven statements in John's gospel where Jesus says, I am, and then something. So far we've seen, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And those don't count the great I am expression in John 8, where Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, reflecting how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, saying, I am who I am. Tell them, Moses, I am sent you. So Jesus is that great I am, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, come in the flesh. So these are very significant statements. We're now at his good friend's funeral. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now I realize we are out of necessity skipping a lot here, we're going to particularly camp on those words. I am the resurrection and the life. Richard Phillips comments, these are among the most precious and important words ever to fall from Jesus' lips. Anglican J.C. Ryle commented, Jesus is saying, he is not merely a human teacher of the resurrection. Not merely a human teacher of the resurrection, but the divine author of all resurrection and the root and fountain of all life. But Lazarus is still in the grave. So pick up the story. Martha informs her sister Mary of Jesus' arrival. Mary goes quickly to see Jesus, followed by a crowd. Now, Jewish funeral custom in this day said that even a poorer family, even a poorer family, should hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman for a funeral. I don't know how you get that job. Professional wailing woman. But that's what custom mandated in this day, you need at least two flute players, one professional wailing woman for a funeral, and this is not a poor family. So it appears Mary has a wailing entourage following her, some legitimately grieving, undoubtedly, and others with this kind of professional grief. So verse 33, 
Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. That word deeply moved, it's more like outrage, indignation. Maybe he is indignant at the unbelief around him, this professional display of grief with no real hope. But probably he's outraged by the presence of death itself, incensed at the fruit of sin in the form of suffering and death in this fallen world. And friends, we should be too outraged at the last enemy death. For every death, is one more piece of bitter fruit on the tree of our lostness and sinful condition. And then Jesus prays before the tomb of Lazarus. And he says something as he prays, very interesting in verse 42. He said, I said this on account of the people standing around. Notice, that they may believe that you sent me. That they may believe you sent me. He's still after our faith. He's still driving at what they and we should believe about him. And then verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out. Some have have quipped that if Jesus did not specify Lazarus' name, all those in the tombs would have come out. I can't promise you that that's true. But here Lazarus comes out, wrapped in grave clothes, and Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. It's the, the pinnacle sign or miracle of Jesus in the first half of John's Gospel. But things take a surprising turn from here. Next, the religious leaders want to arrest Jesus because of this miracle. So we're about to turn a corner in John's Gospel. I just want to reorient you a little bit. We're about to turn a corner toward a bloody cross where our Savior will bear the sin and judgment of all who believe and then He rose. He rose, showing that his payment for sin was more than enough. He rose as the first fruit, the first fruit of a great harvest of right of uh, resurrection to come as he makes all things new. So, yes, Lazarus is raised, but we look forward to seeing in John's gospel the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which makes all the difference. So what's the point here in John 11? What what should be the the takeaway for us? When you're reading the Gospels, a good question to ask is, what do I learn about Jesus here? See, clearly Jesus is after our faith. He's after what we believe about Him. And the thing we're to believe about Him is summed up in verse 25. I am the resurrection, and the life. Now that truth, believing that truth, it should shape us in many ways, I'm sure, but I want to mention two. 
Two ways believing that will shape you. Preparation and perspective. Preparation and perspective. Preparation for death and perspective for life. I say preparation for death because of how Jesus applies the resurrection part of that statement in verse 25. Look back at verse 25. Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he applies the resurrection part in what he says next. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. As the resurrection embodied, the resurrection himself, Jesus addresses our fundamental problem, death. Though he die, he shall live. Kids, I I thought of you here. Not trying to frighten anyone. But it is very necessary that you realize and I realize that one day you will die. One day I will die. I turn 54 later this year. I am one year closer to my inevitable death. You are closer to your inevitable death. As difficult as the pandemic is, hopefully this truth is being reinforced for us. We will all die. And make no mistake, that's a grieving reality. I want to acknowledge that. Jerry and Robbie recently lost a friend to COVID, a pastor about my age, leaving behind a wife and two young children. That's unimaginable sorrow, grief. Darren Farrington's father also died recently of COVID-related complications. He lived a long, full life, thankfully, but there is grief in that. There is sadness and, and sorrow. Yet, for the believer in Jesus, we will be raised to life one day, our souls united with a glorified body. For Sharon's father, there was a a small family graveside service because of the pandemic and other restrictions. But I was there and I stood before her father's casket and I said these words. We commit this body to the ground, looking forward to the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will wipe away every tear from our eyes and raise in glory our fallen bodies. Raise in glory our fallen bodies. That's our hope being described in verse 25. A rock-solid, sure hope, though we die, yet shall we live. Lazarus is a picture of that hope. Jesus is the guarantee of that hope. That in Christ we too shall rise. And this truth, believing this truth, prepares us for death. Christians in the past talked about what they called the ars moriendi, the the art of dying. 
They talked about dying a good death. We don't hear that in our culture, do we? I hope you die a good death. They talked about that because Christians, they felt, should die differently than other people because we have this promise from the one who says, I am the resurrection, that though we die, yet shall we live. So, so prepare yourself, friends. Prepare for your death by believing this truth. A a seventh century bishop, St. Isaac the Syrian, is quoted as saying the following, Prepare your heart for your departure. Prepare your heart for your departure. If you are wise, you will expect it every hour. And when the time of departure comes, go joyfully to meet it, saying, come in peace. Speaking to death, (laughs) go joyfully to meet it. Come in peace. I knew you would come, and I have not neglected anything that could help me on the journey. Prepare your heart like that. That when the time of your departure comes, which it will unless the Lord returns beforehand, when the time of your departure comes, you can go joyfully to meet it, saying, come in peace, I've been expecting you. But how? How, maybe more practically or specifically, do we prepare our hearts like that? I'm glad you asked. Because your question was answered in 1563 by the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. We periodically recite the famous question one of this catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then question two follows on that answer. Question two asks this, what must you know? What must you know to live and die happily in this comfort? What must you know to prepare to die happily? It says you must know three things the greatness of my sin and misery, how I am redeemed from all my sins and misery, and how I am to be thankful for such a redemption. Kevin DeYoung summarizes that as guilt, grace, and gratitude are helpful handles for preparing your heart for your departure. Staying aware of the guilt of your sin. Staying aware of the grace of Christ who lived and died and rose. And then responding always with gratitude to Christ for so great a salvation. And then, friends, you will know the ars moriendi, the art of dying. You'll be ready for a good death. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I would be remiss if I did not urge you right now to turn to Christ and trust in Him as the resurrection and the life. He can take away your guilt by His grace that you might be filled with gratitude right now. I just want to urge you, heal to you, plead with you, 
Surrender to Christ. Trust only in His life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God, and He will. That's the first way believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life shapes us or helps us, preparing us for death. But secondly, believing this truth also gives us perspective. Perspective for life. Here's what I mean. Think about, think about the difference between weddings and funerals. I, I've had the privilege of performing a, a number of weddings. I love weddings. But please don't mishear me. I love weddings. But weddings have a certain pressure to them, oftentimes. A, a certain intensity about them. Everyone gets their hair done professionally. And that's fine, of course. They get their, their makeup done just right. They make sure the catering is, is just right. They often spend large sums of money on the right dress and the right tuxedos. Every, every small detail seems amplified in importance. I often tell engaged couples, look, as important as your wedding day is, it's the marriage you build after that matters much more. I say that to them. I just want to relieve some of the pressure they feel about everything happening just right on the wedding day. And it's a very special day. But funerals are not like that. To my knowledge, no one gets their hair done professionally before a funeral. No one spends large sums of money on their clothing. It's not that the details don't matter at a funeral, but the details are kept in their proper perspective. Everything is put in proper perspective because death is staring us in the face. You see, funerals confront us with the fact that we have only one Essential need, eternal life in Christ. That's the perspective I'm talking about. It's not that other things don't matter. It's that we're reminded of what matters most. In Jesus, in verse 25, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he unpacks the second part, the life part of that statement. He unpacks that part in verse 26. Look at verse 26 with me, where he says next, And everyone who lives, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now on the surface of it, it seems kind of confusing. He just talked about our death. Now he says some will never die. But in John's gospel, life, life usually refers to eternal life saving or eternal life. So you could paraphrase this as everyone who has eternal life and believes in me will never die. Death doesn't get the last word. Life does. It's really an elaboration on what he said back in John chapter 5, where Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has present possession, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed, already passed, from death to life. Did you catch that? In Christ, the believer has, as a present possession right now, has eternal life. You've already passed from death into life eternal. That 
can take everything out of a wedding perspective where it feels so intense and put it into more of a funeral perspective where it still has its importance but it's put in the right priority. Are you tracking with me? For instance, I was listening to a podcast with Mark Dever this week and he was asked about hot button issues of our day in our culture, important issues, and he said how we are loudly and emphatically feeling how important this is and how important that is. And then they asked, does our visceral response to this and that, does this say that we are forgetting a gospel of eternal life? I mean, 2020 and 2021 have felt to me like I'm pinballing from this crisis to that crisis to this crisis to that crisis. And the temptation for me is indeed to loudly and emphatically go here and here and here. When I found listening to this talk of heaven and hell, talk of a gospel of eternal life, Help me. It doesn't diminish the importance of those other issues. It doesn't remove the importance of those other issues, but it does relativize their importance. It takes them out of a wedding perspective where everything is cranked up in intensity and puts them into more of a funeral perspective where we are reminded that eternity is what matters most of all. Do you need that right now? Maybe to regain some perspective on national or world events. They have their importance to be sure. But set eternity before you. Remember Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life eternal. That those who Live, those who have eternal life now shall never die. Or, maybe for you, the pinballing, the pinballing has been more at a personal level. You're, you're pinballing here and, and there and here because of finances or the job or the health or the kids or the neighbors or the friends. And you need perspective for your life personally, an anchor that will hold you through these storms. Here, your Savior saying, I am the resurrection and the life eternal. Everyone who has eternal life right now, present possession, has already passed from death into life. Death does not get the last word in your life. Life does. Death is a gateway. So, your only ultimate problems, your only ultimate problems of death and judgment have been solved. And all will be well one day. You need that perspective right now for your life personally. Remember Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. In Him, you shall never die. 
But it's not just for our crises and trials that we need perspective. We need it for our successes too. Maybe even more so for our successes. The promotion at work. The money in the bank. The good health you're enjoying. The the way the kids are prospering in their job or education or, or even ministry success. Even ministry success can cause us to lose perspective. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers. They come back rejoicing. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus replies in part, do not rejoice in this. Seems so strange. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you hear that? You guys have had great success. Rejoice that you have eternal life. Christ. We need, friends, we need heaven, hell, and eternal life in Jesus to keep it all in their proper perspective, because what happens is, what happens is, this gospel suddenly becomes sweeter to us. William Tyndale wrote in the early years of the Reformation, quote, euangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel, euangelion, or the gospel, the good news, signifies good Merry, glad, and joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. That's what happens when we believe and live in the good of Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. Is it not? Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes shall never die. When we realize that, we realize those are good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings for us. Truths which should make our hearts glad, make us sing and dance and leap for joy more than anything else, more than the country going a certain direction, more than that trial ending in our lives personally, more than the promotion or the good health or the money in the bank or the kids prospering. So, friends, prepare for your death and maintain perspective in this life knowing Jesus is the resurrection and the life eternal for all who believe. Let's pray. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper, I hope, with that joy and that gladness in our hearts. First, pray with me, please. If you... If you are unsure if you have trusted Jesus Christ like this, your death is coming, so is mine. Turn to him right now. I urge you. You have trusted Christ. Bank on this truth afresh. Prepare your heart for your departure. And maybe right now to maintain perspective on what's going on around you, 
what's happening in your life, both good and challenging. Place your hope in Christ, the resurrection, and the life for you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are indeed good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings. I pray, we pray, they would make our hearts glad. Oh, Holy Spirit, help us to that end. Make our hearts glad with this gospel, this good news, that we would sing and dance and leap for joy because Jesus is the resurrection and the life eternal for us. We thank you for this. We can't thank you enough. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.